Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Yeah, Lynn Cullen looking for happy news. Anybody? Seriously, anybody? <laughs> it's a gray day and I, uh, I don't. I'm trying. I, I, I mean, this is how far I'm going to reach. Um, I, I don't. I have this feeling that I'll never again see a Broadway show <laughs> because, first of all, it's hard to get tickets to anything you really want to see, and then the tickets are, <laughs> yeah, they're just exorbitant. Priced. I would say the same for the shows that are here. Um, and again, it becomes like uh, only only people of means can uh, can easily um, see what often are just you know wonderful, I'm sure, uh, productions. I mean, I could, I suppose, spend thousands of dollars to sit in a cramped seat in a Broadway theater, but I won't. <laughs> it, it goes against, it's not that I'm chintzy, it, it goes against my sense of, uh, I don't know, reasonableness, and also of, um, I don't. So there's something on Broadway right now that I would so love to see because I know that she is the most extraordinary of actresses and women. Um, and it is a British actor, Glenda Jackson. Um, she's, I know she's got to have Oscars, um, although I can't tell you for what. Um, She's got to have Tonys, and in fact, I think she won a Tony last year. She's got to be in her 80s, I think, and going strong. And as if this isn't enough, she's been, I don't know if she still is, but she was a m member of parliament for something like 23 uh, years. Um, you know, not some House of Lords lady stuff, no. I mean, a working member, I believe, of, of Parliament. Extraordinary woman. And she is now playing Lear, King Lear. She's playing the lead role in King Lear. And when I first heard that that was, uh, she did it in, I think, London two years ago to just rapturous uh, reviews. And when I heard it was coming to New York, it was the first time in a long time I thought, ooh, I want, I want. <laughs> but, well, I read the review today in the New York Times, and um, it frankly sort of pans the, the production, but raves, raves about Glenda Jackson. 
So, I don't know. I just wanted to say, if you don't have uh, problems uh, paying thousands of dollars uh, to see anything, I'm willing to bet even if it's a lousy production, seeing her do Lear would be incredible. It runs through July 7th. I mean, to be that, do you have any idea <laughs> how exhausting it is to be a stage actor? To, you know, it, I only did it, I mean, really did it once. And it was for what, maybe four or five run, uh, four or five runs maybe. I think we did five shows. And um, I have never been so <laughs> drained in my in my life. That is when, and I was doing it with true Broadway actors. Um, it's when the vagina monologues came to town. And it was the Broadway touring company, but they had this gimmick uh, that in each city they went to, they would employ, uh, there were, was a three-woman cast, they would employ the third woman locally. And for some reason, <laughs> they asked me to do it. I mean, there's lots of great actors here. They asked me. Maybe thinking again, that would, I, I, I don't know. This was years and years and years ago. And I have never, and I was, I had never had an opportunity to really rehearse because the other two actors came in from the last city they were in. So I was thrown out on that stage. <laughs> and um, I think I was pretty bad. Uh, they were amazing, and I did um, one night hit it. It's so weird, and when I hit it, when I had it, I knew I was a good actor that night, and I thought, well, now you know how to do it, so just do the same thing tomorrow. It doesn't work that way. Every show, every Second is the first time when you're doing live theater. Uh, I, it was an incredible, uh, terrifying <laughs> uh, experience for me. Um, but to be as old as Glenda Jackson and going on stage as Lear, which it's a first a three and a half hour play. And the intensity of that. And she's such a great actor that she would be, she'd be in it and living it and doing it and raging, really, oh my God, against the gods and heavens. And I'm in awe of, uh, of actors who do that kind of work. Oh, come to think of it, I did something once at City Theater with, um, and Billy Porter was also in that. Uh, he and I were both doing, I can't, I can't even remember what it was. We were both doing 
sort of guest cameos uh, in some play. And I spent most, he and I spent most of the play backstage talking. And in fact, talking about Lawrence Gaines, who was my producer at WTAE Radio and Doug's producer, and then became Doug's best friend without a doubt. And Lawrence Gaines grew up in the same neighborhood as um, Billy Porter. And uh, Billy knew him well, knew his family well. And we talked about what an extraordinary talent he was. You know, I've been thinking about that a lot. How the assumption that the best talent makes it. The best talent is up there and you know who they are because they're the stars. It's not true. I mean, yes, some of the people that are great talents do make it, and, but so many more don't. People with so much, so much to give don't. Little accidents, little accidents of timing, of right place, right time, because and you can you can see that all you have to do is go to a any production locally here and see actors who aren't known entities and they're mind-blowingly good right so i often think that we tend to not appreciate the talent that is local and the assumption being that local talent i guess this is as high as they could go there isn't enough room <laughs> at the top for all the people who could belong there just by virtue of their ability and talent. And that's true probably in everything. It's true in the arts, certainly. But it's probably true in name a profession, name a... Uh, Maybe there are some that are more obviously merit-based where the cream always does rise, but I really don't know. I don't know. Anyway, I just, I'm just riffing to avoid talking about the news. <laughs> I'm just meandering. Do you know my own family didn't come to see me when I was in the vagina monologues? I was so hurt. My father said, well, I don't want He didn't like the very idea of uh, anything having to do with vaginas being on stage, and especially with me in it. Um, okay. Uh Oh, wow, Mel, Mel. Mel writes, last year while I was in New York City, I went by myself to see Glenda Jackson. You saw her. It, it was a production of Edward Albee's uh, Three Tall Women. And she did win the Tony for that last year, right? Also, Laurie Metcalf was in it. 
Yeah, Mel says, Jackson was truly mesmerizing. I think my ticket was around 150 bucks, and I was sitting in peanut heaven, but it was worth it. Yeah. You know, a lot of those old uh, Broadway theaters, the seats are so... <laughs> they were built when... I, I th th The seats are so tight, and the leg room so... I mean, you are packed. It is not physically comfortable in the older Broadway theaters. It, it is not at all. I, I remember the last time I was in one, I was sort of stunned by it. I forgot or else I've gotten so fat I, I don't fit anymore. I don't know. Okay. Um, I want to do an obit first because, you know, nothing makes me happier than obituaries. Um, it's a woman I did not know of. Um, pretty incredible woman. Uh, she was a farmer her whole life uh, in Oklahoma, I believe. And uh, she died uh, a week ago at the age of 87. Her name was Mona, Mona Lee Brock. And why would we know this woman who spent her whole life from the time she was a child on a farm? Well, because of something she did that seemingly was a small thing, just in her own little uh, environment, it's what I think I was meandering about the other day about how it's so overwhelming when we see everything that's wrong in the world and, and you know, what can I do? You despair. And, and the answer, of course, is you do what you can in the space you are in. And if everyone were to do that, this is what this woman did. I have to go back to the 1980s. And as bad a time as it, now, as it is now for farmers in America, 1980s was equally horrific and culled the numbers of American farmers by just extraordinary numbers. They were losing their farms left and right, declaring bankruptcy left and right, and they were killing themselves left and right. I was talking the other day about deaths by despair and how that is an epidemic in our country. Well, this was a epidemic of deaths of despair among uh, this country's farmers. Uh, there was a huge crisis, some of it caused, of course, by our government. Uh, federal policies changed uh, that lowered so that we could be more globally competitive. This was when globalism was really hitting us. Well, it hit us here in the 80s as well with steel steel industry, farmers had the same kind of um, experience. Uh, so federal policy lowered the prices that farmers could, um, could receive for their crops. And that was to make American goods, American grain, 
um, more competitive on a global scale. But it played havoc with the farmers themselves. And uh, <coughs> so they're... <coughs> Excuse me. So they were suffering from really plummeting prices for what they produced and then rising costs of production uh, as well. Interest rates on loans that farmers rely on loans. Interest rates on loans were soaring and land values were plummeting. You couldn't find a more perfect nightmare for a farmer. Every week in this country at that time, 2,000 family farms were going down. 2,000 farms a week. That was the rate of this cataclysm. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of farmers were killing themselves. Mona Lee Brock and her husband lost their farm. It killed him. He didn't kill himself, but he died of a heart attack, her husband, <coughs> right after. She eventually managed to buy her farm back or another farm. I'm not clear about that. But as she saw her neighbors suffering and everything around her, she called a meeting of all the farmers in the area to come over to my house. Let's talk about what we can do. What we can do to support each other. <coughs> Excuse me. And after that meeting, farmers just knew to call her when they needed to talk. She was of their world. There was something extraordinarily warm and strong about her. And when farmers in her area were in distress, they would call Mona. So she ended up, word spread, and she ended up, her son tells, I mean, the phone was ringing constantly. And before she knew it, she was essentially running a farmer's suicide hotline. The son said the calls were constant. It was wild, he said. Farmers were going in, and they were shooting the lenders. I don't remember that. And then killing themselves. And... We were eating supper, and Mom would be on the phone and, with a farmer, and we all heard the gunshot over the phone. That happened to her many times. She would be talking to somebody, and she'd hear them loading shells. But she saved a lot, and she created a network where there was somebody in every county in Oklahoma so that if she was on the phone with somebody, 
she could signal someone in her family to get in contact with someone who was close enough and they would literally run to physically be with the farmer in distress. Now think of this. This is just somebody who ad hoc trying to help her neighbors. One night she got a phone call and it wasn't a farmer. It was Willie Nelson. He'd heard about the work she was doing and they talked for over three hours. The next day he sent her a personal check for $6,000 and the day after that, a week later, he sent another and he kept calling her and kept talking to her, and then guess what happened? Willie Nelson, with because of Mona Lee Brock's example, started calling the people in his business, saying, we got to do something here. And so farm aid was started. That's where it came from. Just a woman on a farm trying to help people. Uh, Willie Nelson said, called her the angel on the other end of the phone. Mona Lee Brock. That's a life. That is a life well lived. Farm Aid is, you may recall it. I don't, is it still going on? I think every once in a while. I know John Mellencamp got very, very involved with it as well. Maybe they're still doing it. I don't know. Oh, here's a picture of Willie greeting her at a Farm Aid 30th anniversary concert in Chicago in 2015. So, yeah, kept kept going. Wow. Susan writes, I don't get to New York City for plays, but I find local college productions to be an okay substitute, especially CMU's theater. Uh, my calendar includes includes Pitts, uh, production of Into the Woods. That's a musical this weekend. Pitts, Antigone, next weekend. Oh, you really do it. CMU's Comedy of Errors, the following weekend. Every weekend, Susan, good for you. Then t two weeks later, she's going to the O'Reilly for Indecent. I'm just glad my husband's a good sport. Well, you're, you're giving them some culture there. That's good. That's uh, Susan from Hempfield. She, uh, P.S. She says CMU's production of Cabaret in February was Broadway worthy. Well, let me tell you, if you get into the theater program at CMU, uh, you're probably, yeah, as close to Broadway ready as, as, as anybody. That is the, one of the toughest programs to uh, to get into, I know I, I one of 
my first producer here at City Paper doing this show, her daughter, who I watched grow up, is now in the CMU theater program. So she's got something going, no doubt about it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> well, okay, those two things are, I, uh, I just so don't want to, you know what, <laughs> I so don't want to, and you can't make me. Let's see. Okay, I'm going to give you some history here. It's another woman's story. It's a woman who was born in Africa, and her name was Radoshi. She came to this country and became Sally Smith. She didn't want to come to this country. She was a passenger on the last slave ship to come to the country. Do you know the name of that last slave ship? Why am I blanking on it? Why am I, excuse me, I'm getting away from my mic. Um, we should know this stuff, right? I have it here somewhere. Oh, the Clotilda. That docked on our shores with its load of human cargo, including this 12-year-old child. Radoshi. And it docked in 1860. That's the last slave ship arrived in 1860. Slave ships came to these shores for 240 years. She was bought and she was married off at the age of 13 to another slave she said she was interviewed later I was 12 years old she said and he was a man okay she was 12 I was 12 years old and he was a man from another tribe I couldn't understand his talk and he couldn't understand mine. They put us on a block together and they sold us for a man and wife. And thus her life in America began on a plantation in Alabama. Because she came so late, five years later, she became free with the ratification of the 13th Amendment. So she came here, she lived through the Civil War, she lived through the Depression, and 
the extraordinary African-American author, Zora Neale Hurston, discovered her um, when she was doing research uh, for her literary work, and she was doing research in the South and talking to slaves, former slaves. And amazingly, this child who was sold at the age, kidnapped and put in chains and sold at the age of 12, um, ended up also in a film that was released in 1938. And it was produced by the Department of Agriculture. I guess this would have been during the uh, Depression's public works kinds of projects that they did. And the Department of Agriculture in the Roosevelt administration was putting out uh, educational films. And this film was called The Negro Farmer, Extension Work for Better Farming and Better Living. And she ended up being interviewed in it. There aren't a lot of people who were on the last slave ship who ended up being filmed. Also ended up being interviewed by the local newspaper. So there's a lot of um, the, the, the way I had that quote about how she was sold uh, in a, on a block with this man she didn't know and couldn't talk to is because the Montgomery uh, Alabama advertiser interviewed her in 1932. The reason she ended up back in the news, um, this was from a, a New York Times story, is because new research shows that she is in all likelihood the last survivor of the transatlantic slave trade, the last one. She, every, all the others who had come died before her uh, the, on that last ship, the Clotilda. It had been believed that the last was a man named Kaju, Kajo Lewis. He was believed to be the last living survivor of the uh, slave trade. And, and now researchers, and the researchers are in Great Britain, they say that, in fact, it is not Kajo Lewis, although he'd be second. It's Radoshi. She lived longer. He died in 1935. She died in 1937. I'm looking at a picture of her. By the way, when the 13th Amendment passed, <coughs> life for her really didn't change. She stayed on the plantation. It was the only home she knew. And that was not unusual. She stayed. She liked the people that had owned her. Her quote is, we stay on the Smith's place 
where we know folks be good to us. I don't want to leave. Okay. Well. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. There's a caller? Is the person still there? Wow. Okay, caller. Sorry. Hi, Lynn. Hi. Uh, hey, I just wanted to mention real quick. Uh, did, did you see the... Uh, Previews of that movie, The Public. The the movie is called The Public? Yeah, it's with Amelia Estevan or whatever his name is. Alec Baldwin's in it. I thought maybe you no. saw it. It'd be something that looked like you would go to see. I don't know why. It's just, it's, yeah, that one of those type of movies. It, it's, it's about the homeless, global warming, and they're protesting in it. It's one of those type of movies. I, I didn't see much of it. I, I thought you'd know about it, so I, I don't know, but it'd be something. You know, I... And it, it took him 20 years to make his movie. That's how much time he put into it. Who put into it? 20 uh, years? That, yeah, I just, that, uh, the guy that's half-brothers with Charlie Sheen. Oh, you're saying Emilio Estevan. yeah. That guy, he he made this movie. He okay. makes those type of movies. Well, I think but, he, um, he comes, you know, his dad was is a very political um, guy. Yeah. And, <clears throat> um, yeah, so they're political. I don't know that that's a movie I'd go see because, as I said, I, no. I, it's, that sounds, I mean, if I, I, I desperately want movies now to take me away <laughs> from Oh, okay. All yeah, that's of that. <laughs> because I feel immersed yeah. in it all the time. It's not that I won't, but I tend to. Um, I want people to right. make happy movies. That's what we all need now, don't we? We need happy movies, movies that make us laugh. Well, that's true, too. Yeah, there ain't enough of those. But I thank yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. I didn't. Okay, thank you. Right. Okay, bye bye. Okay, bye. <coughs> okay. So. Oh, that horrible story about the the kid, uh, the missing kid. You know, I, I, that was just a. These stories that come around that. Why would someone do something like that? You know what I'm talking about. This. This guy came up to a woman in Newport, Kentucky on Wednesday. He looked like he'd been beaten up and he was agitated and he's saying, please help me, please help me. I'm I'm Timothy Pitts, a, uh, a boy who'd been missing since 2011. And, uh, you know, all hell broke loose. And Why would someone do that when they know now that there's DNA testing? <clears throat> I mean, he ain't what he is. The guy was um, just got out of prison, and while he was in prison, he must have looked into this case. He just got out of jail in Medina, Ohio. He's 23 years old, and he was passing himself off as a four, this 14, what would be this 14-year-old boy. 
anyway, we have another caller. Caller? Yes? Hung up? Um, well, the guy who did it, and it's not clear whether he'll face charges. What would the charge be? I mean, it's another case of sort of taking up police time uh, with a false story. Uh, I don't know. It's I, I, I'm not aware that he's been charged. But he was in... Get this. Here's what he was in prison for, this guy. They're called back. Hello, caller. Hi, Lynn. Yes. Uh, yeah, yes. I'd well, the guy who did it, and it's not clear You need to turn your I'd audio I'd like down. to... Turn your audio. I'm sorry. Okay. <coughs> I got it down. Okay. I'm sorry. I'm an old, old fan of yours, and I've just discovered how to listen to you again, and I am so happy. I can't tell you how happy I am. Oh, well, that I makes listen, two of us. I listened to you in the uh, 80s and 90s when you were on uh, radio, and I, I never missed you. And then when you were gone, I couldn't find you. So I'm so glad to hear from you. Oh, and I am so glad to hear from you. Thank you for finding me. I'm talking about this lost boy, and I, I didn't know I was a lost woman, too. You found me. <laughs> you were a lost woman, yes, yes. Well, I, I just want to tell you how happy I am to be with you, and I'll be listening to you every day. But I don't want to take up the time because I want to listen to you. Oh, you're too dear. Thank you so, 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 so much. Thank, Thank you. you, Lynn. God bless you. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, Yay. Yay. Uh, <laughs> oh, that made my day. Uh, Ed writes, I saw King Lear... Oh my God, you saw Jackson and King Lear? I saw King Lear last month in previews. Whoa! And at the stage door, I told Glenda Jackson she was beyond superlatives as King Lear. Oh, you told Glenda Jackson that she's head! Jackson's diction puts so much emotion into each syllable. She gives a powerful performance from imperious at the beginning to poignant as Lear becomes physically and emotionally devastated. I can't even imagine. Oh, wow. Hey, Amy, see if you can see how old she is. Find out how old she is. Wow. And see if, see what she, what did she win the, she, I know she's won Oscars. I mean, she has been an actor for so, so, so long. She's 82. Okay. Yeah. Unbelievable. And that she's got the energy to do that. And as I said, be a member of Parliament. So, um, oh, I was telling you what the um, 
what this creep, the guy who got out of prison in Ohio and then decided he would try to impersonate this lost child, um, he was in prison. He was serving an 18-month sentence for burglary and vandalism. But get this. This is what he did to get that charge and then conviction. Uh, police in Ohio said that this guy posed. He's, he likes to pretend he's somebody he's not. What got him into jail is he posed as a prospective home buyer so that he could gain access to a $400,000 custom-built home in a Cleveland suburb. And then all he wanted the access for is he threw a party there that he promoted on Facebook and the pa the party goers cost thousands of dollars worth of damage. So hence you get, I guess that's burglary, they broke in, and vandalism. And he was sentenced to uh, 18 months. He served uh, 14. Did you get the Oscars she got? Did she get Oscars? Yeah? Okay, wait. Hanging on. Um... And, oh, I don't want to talk about that. Let's see. We have, uh, I can't believe, it was like a nightmare when I heard the name Herman Cain. <laughs> Herman Cain? No! Do you remember Herman Cain? He was that hapless uh, pizza shop owner who uh, ran... Oh, wait. Okay, so she got a Tony for Three Tall Women just last year. Academy Award for Warm Women in Love. Oh, the D.H. Lawrence. That was sort of a steamy thing. That was a long time ago. And then A Touch of Class, she got an Academy Award. I'm not remembering that. And she also got another award for a touch. She's just amazing. I think she's what? Touch of Class was 74. I mean, we're talking. So she was winning Oscars when she was a young pup. And now she's 82, and she's winning Tonys and playing King Lear. Women in Love. I'm remembering that as Alan Bates and um, who was that other big, strong-looking guy? Wasn't there a big to-do about a nude wrestling scene with the two men in, <laughs> in Woman in Love? That was a long, that's a long, 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 long time ago. I cannot believe you talked to Glenda Jackson. Oliver Reed, that's it. <coughs> I can't remember if I, you know, locked the door two minutes after I locked the door and I... Hey, so Paul Krugman today has a, um, geez, it's really, he, he, he really went wild today because he's saying, you know, we already know what Trump's legacy is going to be, but he goes so far as to say that Trump's legacy will be that 
he will have caused directly or indirectly the premature deaths of countless Americans. Now, even I never thought of that. But Krugman thinks of it, and he explains why he says that, and in fact, it's a, it's a pretty good argument. He says, let's look at the deaths. There's already deaths caused by him. We, I'm thinking, he doesn't mention this one, I don't think, but I'm thinking of two children I know of that died in uh, uh, the custody of um, our government who were terribly ill. They were, what, one was seven, one was eight. A little boy and a little girl taken from their families. And they died, both of bacterial infections. They did not get care. Okay, so those are two dead we can lay at his feet. The woman killed, I mean, he, he says the, the rise, I think, we'll, let's put the 11, the 11 Jews at Tree of Life here. He would put them at Trump's feet because Trump's willingness to absolutely refuse to condemn the rise of white nationalism and in fact to feed into it um, re results in, so let's, I mean, all of the deaths from these white nationalists newly um, empowered under Donald Trump. Let's lay all those deaths. The woman uh, mowed down in um, Charlottesville. But then what he really wants to point out is that Trump's continued deregulation of all kinds of industries will result in death. I didn't even know of the most recent one. Apparently, <clears throat> he is um, wanting to allow hog plants where pigs are taken and butchered for our consumption. He wants hog plants to be able to inspect themselves for food safety. <laughs> I mean, that is so uh, unbelievable. Why do you think the U.S. government ever stepped in in the first place and said, hey, sorry, you know what? You are not able to just butcher those animals and put them in our grocery stores. We're sending inspectors to make sure that stuff is safe, that your plants are clean, that certain regulations are being followed. 
Why did, does government ever get into regulation? Because the producers, manufacturers, the companies, the corporations can have proven <clears throat> they cannot be trusted. I'm sorry about my voice again. Cannot be trusted because they kill people for profit. Krugman says, yeah, why not? Let the hog butchers police themselves. It's not as if we've seen safety problems arise from self-regulation in industries like you know, the aircraft industry. As we continue to learn more and more that those two Boeing planes should never have been in the air. There was a true problem with those planes. We have learned that the Ethiopian pilots did everything they were supposed to do. It was a malfunction of the plane itself. The plane took over and wouldn't let the pilots gain control. The FAA, which I guess we thought, did the signing off on new aircraft? What did we know? We find out that no, they let Boeing do it themselves. So, Krugman says, yeah, and you know, Trump administration wants to roll back rules that limit emissions of mercury from power plants. He wants to prevent the EPA from uh, taking account of many of the benefits that accrue to us with reduced mercury emis emissions. No, Trump instead is warning us that renewable energy, like wind power, causes cancer, right? It causes cancer. But let's let, let's let power plants belch out mercury into our air. That doesn't do anything. You know what causes cancer? Coal burning power plants <laughs> do. But of course, Trump has it backwards. Krugman claims here, and I find this incredible because he doesn't tell me how he comes on this. He says, the Trump administration's own estimates say that its relaxation of coal pollution rules will kill more than a thousand Mer Americans every year. Please tell me that can't be true. His own administration has done the risk-benefit analysis for 
pulling back on the pollution requirements for coal-burning power plants and have found that what they have done will result in a thousand of us dying every year, and they say, oh, that's okay. Krugman says if the administration gets to implement its full agenda, not just deregulation of so many industries, but discrimination against industries such as renewable energy industries, the toll will tick higher and higher and higher. So Krugman says, yeah, let's be, let's cut to the chase here. Trump's legacy, well, it'll be myriad, but um, a lot of people will die needlessly. Krugman says, so if you eat meat, or for that matter, drink water, or breathe air, there's a real sense in which Donald Trump is trying to kill you. Now, see, I think Krugman goes too far with this because Trump doesn't engage in the kind of thought process that where he would intentionally, you know, it's not intent on his part. He's not even thinking of the consequences of his insanity. So what was I saying? I was saying Herman Cain. Jeez. So he wants Herman Cain on the Federal Reserve Board. Let me tell you something. The Federal Reserve Board has always been a non-political, non-political. I mean, it, it's not partisan politically. It might be uh, biased to a, a certain kind of uh, capitalist economy, obviously. Uh, but it has not been Republican-Democrat kind of bias. Well, with Trump, that is going to change. If he puts Herman Cain on and he puts this other loser he wants on, um, and there's no reason why they won't get on, right? Why wouldn't they? You got Mitch McConnell. Just sending them through. Here comes another unqualified idiot. Send them through. Here comes another. They just keep going. They just keep going. So, <clears throat> Herman Cain. <laughs> there is an opinion piece, the headline of which is Trump's next possible Fed nominee, the Herman Cain, can't understand basic policy issues. And then goes on to just eviscerate the guy. You may have recalled him. He was in, he was just one of those astonishingly um, idiotic uh, people running for, there's a lot of them now. You know, did you see the guy who got in on the Democrat side yesterday? Was it 
Congressman Tim Ryan or something from the great state of Ohio. He was the one leading the charge to keep Nancy Pelosi from being the Speaker of the House. What do we need him for? Give me a break. Now, the odds are that a lot of these people who are jumping in know they don't have a chance, but their egos and, uh, you know, and wanting to raise their name recognition and uh, hoping that they will be able to, you know, do a Pete Buttigieg and somehow break out of the pack. Or, in fact, they're really not running for president. They're running for vice president or cabinet position. But, my God, there's going to be over 20 of them. I'm exhausted already. And I want to say again, I saw a clip, um, you know, with all this stuff with Trump's tax returns. Uh, some network news show I think I was watching said, you know, they were doing all, all Trump's, won't, why won't he show he's the only president since Nixon who has not showed us his tax returns, or for that matter, only nominee uh, who hasn't, except that's not true. And they said, no, there is one other. It's Bernie Sanders. And I had mentioned that the other day, right? Bernie Sanders will not he keeps doing a Trump. He keeps saying, oh, coming soon. And they played an interview, recent interview with him, where he said, hey, where, he was asked, where, just, you, you got your tax returns, right? I mean, what, it's not like you got to scrounge around. We all have a, a little drawer, a file somewhere, right? Just hand them over. What is the, and he keeps doing, he doesn't say I'm under audit like Trump does. He keeps promising soon, soon. He's been doing that now for years. So as we ask for Donald Trump, what is he hiding? <laughs> He's got a, uh, what, what is Bernie Sanders hiding? I'm asking, and I came up with an answer the other day. I said my suspicion is he's hiding that he's rich as hell. Okay? That's my guess. The yeah, the the socialist is rich as hell. Um and that he has uh I think even more than two homes and other stuff. And maybe he's hiding that in fact he's not charitable. And maybe he's hiding I mean the very things that Trump is hiding. If you run for an office that high up, we, the voters, deserve to see what you do when we're not looking. Need to see if there might be a conflict of interest here or there. Something that totally does not match with maybe the rhetoric coming out of your mouth. And so I just want to say, Bernie, where are your tax returns? And I'm serious about that. He apparently is the front runner now. 
Give me an effing break. Um... <clears throat> Okay, so I guess that's it. And I want to tell the, this wonderful old woman who found me again that I hope, I just realized I said effing, I hope that you're not offended because now that I'm not on the radio, I, I have been allowed to use my often salty language because the FCC does not control where I am now and so I am prone to say things I would not say on the radio could not say on the radio and I I hope to heck <laughs> I hope to heck that doesn't upset you too much because I am prone to um Swear like a sailor. I just do. I'm sorry. So that's the part of me you did not know before. Anyway, you made my day. <laughs> you made my day. Spread the word. Um, and like me, right, guys? Like me on Facebook. Give me five stars on iTunes. I was thinking, even if you don't listen to me on iTunes, go to iTunes and give me five stars. Eh? Come on. We're all in this together. And I'm going to go try to find my voice, okay? Have a great weekend. It's going to be spring tomorrow. I can't wait. Don't overdo it, but uh, have fun. I'll see you Monday. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.